Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Cruella starring Emma Stone, Emma Thompson, Joel Fry, and Paul Walter Hauser. Oh, get ready for this. Story by Aline Broch-McKenna, Kelly Marcel, Steve Zizis. Screenplay by Dana Fox, Tony McNamara, and directed by Craig Gillespie. It's a lot of people uh, contributing to the screenplay for this one. <laughs> Boy, you're not kidding. When I saw that pop up, too, I thought we were in for a real rocky ride. Well, it's a good... that plays out as we break it down, but yeah, it's a lot of names, isn't it? It's a good thing that it pops up at the end of the movie, so you don't really have time to process it. <laughs> You know, or, it's about that too. You think about that many people involved with an already established property. You should give one pause on exactly how many conversations we had, but about a character that we'd all kind of seen and, and been accustomed to knowing the ins and outs with. So we'll see how it plays out. But yeah, it's certainly an interesting screenwriting and uh, script by creditorial um, markings for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, welcome back to Rice Smile Films, everybody. We're sticking uh, with the next couple weeks, not necessarily diving into a whole brand new cask just yet, but sticking with some new re- newly released summer uh, 2021 uh, releases, some small batch film review, you know, small batch being, you know, we're making just a little of it, um, but it's going to be unique uh, all into of itself. And today we're going to be talking about Cruella, released just a couple weeks ago. This is the Disney origin villain vehicle for Cruella DeVille, the primary antagonist from 101 Dalmatians, which I think we talked about last week. Uh, uh, we really we really dig that uh, original cartoon. It's definitely been one of my favorites. Yeah, I'm with you. That's one of my favorites, too. And I think that's sort of a second tier Disney villainess. Is that a fair ranking for her? I'm certainly yeah, not Maleficent or the evil Queens a little bit lower on the list. Yeah. yeah it's because she's not necessarily tied to like any of the princesses, uh, but she's fully villainous in her own right. But we'll get into all of that into all the nuts and bolts of what make this film tick. But uh, first, you know, we got our drinks over here. It's a little early over here for myself, Matt. I'm actually going to start with a cup of coffee, which I got going right now, but I'm going to transition throughout the episode to uh, some Jack Daniels single barrel select. Well, that's pretty close to what I'm doing too, except I won't be transitioning into any Jack Daniels. I'm probably going to move just good old fashioned beer here in a little while. I've got um, a couple of choices, but uh, the liquor pickings are a little bit limited. So it's coffee and then we'll see what beer I decide to crack open, which doesn't seem to fit Cruella at all. She's not a beer kind of review, but you know, take them as you get them, I guess. But you'd probably drink her coffee black. (laughs) <laughs> Boy, you got that right. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's go ahead and get this started with our flight question. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. Oh, to Roger. see her is to take a sudden chill. <gasps> Cruella, Cruella. She's like a spider waiting for the kill. Roger, she'll hear you. From the classic, the original 101 Dalmatians, it's probably, you know, w- w- one thing that's made her stick out uh, more than any of the villains is she has her own villain theme song. <laughs> yeah, it's 
the memorable one too, isn't it? Well, just think of just all the great villains out there. Like I, I try to think of, you know, like Darth Vader and his Imperial March, you know, if you're able to kind of whistle and hum the tune of the villain, they, they certainly have a lot of staying power. Do you find that interesting that that's the theme song that we all know and associate with her and the film that we're going to break down today chose to go with the 1970s British punk feel. Didn't you find that a bit odd? I did. Yeah. But maybe that was, maybe it was refreshing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, indeed. Excellent. Well, flight this week, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about villains. I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot about Disney, Disney live action, Disney live action, villain origin tales. Uh, this <laughs> seems to be their moniker to kind of redoing the past and, we're going to talk about that because I have a lot of thoughts on that idea from the House of Mouse. But uh, the flight this week is, you know, they're probably going to roll it out again with another villain or another live action tale. So who's the villain you'd like to see? And, you know, what would that kind of be about? This was so easy for me. It took all of three seconds to come up with this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going with Mother Gethel from Tangled. That's the story that I want. Uh, I think that there is, thank you, a very mm, sinister background into why she's desperately trying to hang on to the beauty the way she is. And I'm going to get into this as we get into this film today because I think it plays into uh, some of the criticisms or successes, depending on what side of the aisle you're on with the the Cruella film, but yeah, I want Tangled, but not so much Tangled as much as I want Mother Gethel. Excellent. How about you? Yeah, this was, this was an interesting thing too. And you know, it kind of really kind of gets into, you know, prequel discussion, which we talk about a lot, you Mm -hmm. know, how much of (laughs) the past or the unexplained do you want to see? I can, there's the part of me that just really appreciates just absolute evil when something shows up and you kind of just see the evil. Um, there's something about taking the sting out of it of over explaining what went wrong with this person. But, yeah. uh, you know, in the pantheon of Disney films, you know, the nineties resurgence is, you know, certainly a great period for the company. But one of the films I don't think just gets enough love is hunchback of Notre Dame. So mm. my villain tells actually going to be judge Claude Frollo. I always call him judge Claude Froyo, the king of frozen mm. yogurt. Uh, but I want to see the the origin tale uh, with him. This kind of high, almost like judge priest here in the in in Paris, who just has supreme rule and authority over anything that gets said. But you know, he has a great song later on in the film called Hellfire, and it's essentially like it's about like him pining his loins, pining for Esmeralda, and all mm-hmm. these kind of crazy stuff. So I really want to know kind of like how this guy broke bad and you know, what really sent him. And and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, Quasimodo and, you know, him kind of taking him as a pseudo adopted son. I mean, I think that film just does not get talked about nearly enough in, in that era of films. That's a great choice. I love that. Are you a fan of all of those films from the early thirties to present day to the TBS one? I believe that had Selma Hayek. Are you just a big believer in that because it doesn't get a lot of credit and i think that that's been handled sometimes quite masterfully well what's your overall take on oh, that? i definitely i definitely love the lon cheney version was that like 1925 yeah, yeah. 24 yeah mm-hmm. he's really good at that and then yeah i really do dig this cartoon and, and that might be all that i've really seen of it but it's, it's just such an interesting an interesting tale it's so gothic and you know religious but also 
you know, it's just kind of a weird snapshot of like that particular era of, of, of Paris uh, at the time. So it's kind of got that art feel to it. No, there's just something I'm always just been really gravitated towards that, uh, that, that particular tale. And based on my research, I don't think that I'm getting the origin tale of Frollo, but I know that they're in discussions to remake that film in some live action format, which I guess I have mixed feelings about. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Excellent. Well, uh, I think we've got two nice villains to sort of play with there. Uh, Maybe we can have an adjoining of the two and uh, some team up and that can tackle the next Marvel universe as they're looking for the next big bad to fight. Why not a couple that's based in the uh, timelessness of aging and the debauchery of the almighty in an absolutist church kind of way. I think we've got ourselves a nice duo. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, we'll come, we'll come back to that here for the, the end of the episode, but let's get right into it. Let's get to our review breakdown of Cruella. Speaking of statements, here's one. That necklace is the reason I'm dead, but I'm getting ahead of myself. From an early age, I realized I saw the world differently than everyone else. What? Well, that's not the pattern. You have to follow the pattern as a way of doing things. That's ugly. Including my mother. That's cruel. Names of Stella, not Cruella. (gasps) It wasn't her I was challenging. It was the world. But of course my mother knew that. That's what worried her. Remember, you belong here as much as anyone. They're lucky to have you. Agreed. Hey. What do you say to Cruella when she tries to get the better of you? Thank you for coming, but you may go now. Good. Now say goodbye to her. Goodbye, Cruella. And wear the hat. I don't need the hat. Alrighty, let's start uh, right here and we'll kind of just tackle this little prologue. But one thing that I really just like off the bat, I kind of really like that they made the Cruella moniker almost kind of like a like a Jekyll and Hyde type thing. It's something that appears and rears its ugly head, but it's almost just uh, like just a playful nickname than like who she was to to start out with. So if you're trying to build sympathy for the character before you ultimately make her, you know, uh, turn against her and we'll have to see if we ever turn against her at, at, at parts in this film. But I think that's, I think that was a good way to to go about with just the name in in of itself. Yeah, perfect name. What I thought was really well handled in this first 20 minutes is what exactly she's getting in trouble for. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at it, it's just general boy will be boy kind of tomfoolery on the playground. Frogs in the desk and you know, hitting someone on the playground with the ball a little bit too hard. But what I found truly compelling was she's ending up in the headmaster's office with some demerits put on her book that's filled with demerits by the time we get too far into the film or not too far into the film mm-hmm. is what she's doing really all that bad because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's not. Um, and there's, therein lies the, the rub with the nickname Cruella given to her probably by the boys that she's, uh, so capable and, um, well, frankly, more talented than you know and does that work for you i mean in terms of just like the origin tale in general because when cruella shows up in that original cartoon when the sound clip i played uh with roger singing this song that he just is improvising perfectly at at her arrival at the doorstep 
Uh, mm-hmm. She just shows up and you just know she's bad. You know she's not to be trifled with. You know, you know she's got that crazy long sedan uh, and her fur coat yeah. and her frilly hair. And we kind of just accept the evil. Does it work for you to kind of get... Uh, how do I say this? Uh, I feel like, you know, humanizing her a little bit, which I think is needed, but it does take a little bit of a sting out of, out of the, the villainous aspects a bit for me, especially when you, when you kind of say uh, everything that is rooted in kind of revenge and intentions of trying to, you know, undo a wrongdoing done to her, her mother, does that kind of, does that, take away from the character that we've already seen before? It can and often does. Uh-huh. We've talked a lot about the trouble with prequels as you're, you know, creating the story behind the lesser developed version of what we've already come to know in the established film, whether it's Darth Vader or Hannibal Lecter, or we could go, you know, on and on, even the base motel if you want to do like television, right? Mm-hmm. In this film, it does. In all prequels, I can't say the same. It poses, I think, the essential question for me in this film is, is villainy learned or is it inherent? And if there is a progression to what villainy becomes, Mm -hmm. a lot of this film is going to make sense in that progression and cause and effect absolutely are the components in that, that it has to be built on duh, right? That's mm-hmm. cause and effect. It's the story. Sure. In this film, the, like the, the long answer to a short would have been yes, mm-hmm. is what I just said. It does work for me in this film. How about you? I detect a little bit of hesitation in you from this. I think, I think just a little bit. I mean, I really do like some of the, the things that we'll, we'll go into here uh, right from the get go. But it does take a little bit of a little bit of the villainy sting out of it for me. There's just something so inherently evil about a lot of those early Disney villains, whether it's Maleficent, the evil queen in Snow White, uh, Cruella. Uh, I'm trying to just trying to think of who others in there. The evil um, godmother, yes, the stepsisters in Cinderella. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there was just something just so pure evil about them, but like they were mostly human at times. Yeah. And then uh, it's it's obviously trying to kind of go into a route of, you know, where I think, you know, the Star Wars prequels, you know, tend to fail, which is, you know, really trying to humanize the villain a little bit too much, but then yeah. still, still trying to remind us, oh, but this person's still evil. So I think there's parts of it that definitely work for me uh, here. Uh, but then there's also, I think, just a few missteps. I just, I guess, just in the overall portrayal of it, um, in this whole kind of revenge scheme. But let's kind of just lay the groundwork for like what that is. Yeah. So, so Cruella and her mother, you know, they they um they go to this estate, and it's just because the the mother needs to. What is the mother trying to do here? Is she just needs to talk with the Baroness? Which I love. I love the name the Baroness. I was like, is, mm-hmm. is this GI Joe? <laughs> <laughs> where's Destro? yeah exactly yeah oh, they're perfect <laughs> yeah. uh so she's going there they're paying a visit she says stay in the in the car but of course her rebellious side gets the best of her because she it's all kind of trapped in the world of fashion and this kind yeah. of marie antoinette <laughs> french revolution party that they're having here with the, the powdered yeah. the powdered wig party 
And of course, mm-hmm. hijinks ensue and it ends to a chase and with the Dalmatians and Mark Strong and everything. But it ultimately ends pretty tragically where the mother and the Baroness are, I imagine, having it out or some argument or misunderstanding. And we're, we'll, we'll come to find, you know, all the all the, the truth to all that. But these Dalmatians essentially just push the mother over the cliffside, which is which was pretty shocking. I'll, I'll be honest with that. I didn't really see that coming at all. Yeah. Um, I think that she goes to speak to the Baroness for money. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if Cruella has been kicked out of that school she's in, but there is that interesting conversation that precedes her mother's death, which is, Mom, I promise I'll be better. Essentially, that's what Cruella tells her mother in the car is, Mom, I promise I won't cause you so many more headaches. Uh-huh. And you can see her mother, her eyes well a little bit, and she knows she has her hands full, but I think the difference between the mother and the Baroness that's played out throughout the rest of the film is whereas the mother sees hope for good in Cruella and maybe not rightfully so, but hopefully looking for an outcome that is positive globally. Mm-hmm. The Baroness in Estrella or Cruella, whichever version of the Jekyll and Hyde character you spoke about, you want to talk about Mm -hmm. sees the same hope, but it's for the individual, namely herself. So whereas the Baroness is going to deny the funds needed to allow a better life or a better way forward for, you know, Cruella and her mother. Yeah. What we're going to come to eventually is that's what Estrella ends up providing back for the Baroness. So you get a really good moment here, Jesse, for me. Mm-hmm. And that's if Cruella is as evil as she is, and she is not a likable character prior to this film. Mm-hmm. I was like, look, man, murdering dogs. That's a long way yeah, back. Yeah. It's very hard to make a dog murderer uh-huh. redeemable, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to create a foe that is more hateable. And I think they do that. Than, yes, absolutely. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. You, you know, that's been done from time to time fairly well. I think Dexter did that really well. If you ever chose to watch that show, mm-hmm. Dexter, I think they did that pretty well. Yeah. But the transition that you were speaking about in the, the prequel guys, how do you take this character that is just wrought with innate evil and humanize them has to be built on a series of cause and effects and consequences and a staircase like effect that builds to why I'm doing what I'm doing. And this gets to the question that man has been on my mind a lot for, I feel like the last two to three months on the show. And that's Wonder Brothers, Wonder Brothers, uh, uh, interfering with their films. <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, yeah, that's a, and this is B then. Um, <laughs> why is our villain doing what they're doing? And yes, yeah. it's been a, we're going to get into this day because I think I've come to it. Um, mm-hmm. not just in this film, but a general sort of hyperbolic one take, if you will, on that. And man, I took us on a tangent here with this rant. But no, it's good because it sets up the whole kind of premise of the film, which is, you're right, you know, in order for us to kind of get on the side of the villain who's viewed as the hero in this film, the villain villain of this, Emma Thompson, the Baroness, 
needs to be just as evil, if not more so. And I think that is an accomplishment of the movie. And if we're going to go to why Cruella decides to get back at the Baroness, I think you have two reasonable setups that have already been established. Number one, that's reclaiming the necklace. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's not Carlotta Valdez's necklace, but it's sort of similar with its red, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and that plays out to great significance later in the film. And secondarily, the Baroness represents the world that Estrella wants to get into. And it's the world of fashion. Now we yeah. have to be careful here because mm-hmm. this might be a little to the devil wears Prada. And I think it, um, it does sway that way at times. A little bit. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's because the world of fashion is so particular to that film and the way the characters are depicted. It's hard not to draw that correlation. Yeah. Um, but, well, let's, you know, let's talk about that. Okay. The, the world of fashion a, a little bit later. Cause I have some interesting thoughts about it and maybe just my own, just kind of insight into that. But uh, well, I know that you're very adept in the world of women's fashion in uh, hot couture quarter of the <laughs> 1970s, so I can hardly wait for this. <laughs> Get your finger on that pulse, don't you, Jeff? Yeah, I sure do on the zeitgeist yeah. of fashion. Do you, th- do you think there, yeah, do you think there's a bit of a, a miss here, just, just kind of playing devil's advocate? I'm just kind of trying to look at this from a few different angles of kind of how, yeah. how it, it kind of jumped out at me. Do you think it's a bit of a miss to have Cruella and cause to me, the black and white hair is like the true moniker of like when she's on that side yeah. and it's almost feels like she should be redheaded here at the beginning. And then this incident makes her go to the Cruella side. Cause, oh, I see. cause uh, like I think what she's seen is so shocking. Sure. I get that. Cause then she, then the light, her life goes into chaos at that point. And to me, Cruella is kind of like the epitome of that. And it almost seems like, when she gets into the fashion world for being really good at like what she, what she knows, mm-hmm. then she puts on the, the moniker of Estella, you know what I mean? Like, and it's only like throughout the film when she's pushed and finds out the real truth that Cruella starts leaking through the seams. You know what I mean? You know, putting on a makeup to, you know, to disguise that aspect of yourself uh, versus the inverse, which is what the film decides to ultimately go with. I don't know. I don't know. Doubt. I just, just, I think story-wise, I think there's something to play with there. Well, it gets to what you said anyway, so I think it is a myth. Mm-hmm. If you do it organically, as she witnesses her mother going over the cliff and that event is so shocking, we start to see, um, you know, I don't want to be too progressive in the changing of the dark hair to light, but we start to see a progression in the struggle and a two-faced, two coin, like two sided coin kind of thing build. Yes. I think that there's a bit of a miss there because what you're saying is exactly right. Mm -hmm. It's going to manifest itself. Anyway, we're going to get that regardless. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a bit of a miss. You're right. Just like, just Um, like, yeah, a natural trend, like a natural, like progression mm -hmm. of the hair coming back as, you know, because essentially what she, she's uh, an orphan now and then finds two other orphans that they um, kind of form a bond and, you know, that's got to be chaotic. You know what I mean? It's, you know, kids racing kids, so to speak, in this this uh, uh, dilapidated Chantat <laughs> that they find. But this is, uh, yeah, Horace and Jasper, which were two of my favorite characters from uh, the original cartoon. And let's just kind of yeah. get to, to this aspect that I think is also, I think, a, a, a plus. I think this film was cast really well in all its parts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Emma Stone, I think, is just pitch perfect for this character. I mean... 
her British mm-hmm. accent is on point. I mean, the look uh, is is just so spot on. Uh, Horace and Jasper, yeah, Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser, uh, really good. And then you have yeah Emma Thompson in here and Mark Strong. I mean, it's just it's just so well put together in the casting department. Uh, what, what, Miller, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Emma Thompson's so good in this role that she even masters Cruella's sneer. Mm-hmm. from the film. There's a couple moments in that when she pulls her head back behind her shoulders and gets that haha wry smile. Yep. Of the wickedly wry smile that mm-hmm. is the same joker like grin mm-hmm. that Cruella rolls in the film animated film proper. Uh yes, I think it's brilliantly cast. Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser look exactly like Jasper and Horace, mm-hmm. um, the Maya character is going to play a really important role. We'll get to that. Yes, it, it's cast masterfully well. Mark Strong was literally put on the earth to be a villain or a butler, wasn't he? <laughs> What's he not? Oh, yeah, he, I guess he kind of you know turned good, but he's still on the bad side. But yeah, mm-hmm. when's that guy not playing a bad guy? Kingsman is like the only wow. thing I can think of. <laughs> That's even, yeah. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, maybe that's about it. Yeah, maybe yeah. But Shazam, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, this guy's just yeah. It's just he plays such a good bad guy. I mean, he, fit, he it just fits him so well. But man, I got I got to talk about it. Just another little miss here, and then we'll kind of you know progress on with the story. And this one really perplexed me throughout the film because I I wondered why this was the easier choice. In some moments, I mm-hmm. understand, but other times I was like, it's just sitting there looking up at her. Why was every dog in this movie CGI? Yeah, um, I mean, the the on-the-nose answer is the training, but that's pretty weak with as much assets as Disney has at their disposal to train it. Well, I I think it's pretty weak because they've they've already remade this movie before with Glenn Close and Jeff Daniels and I think Miranda Mm -hmm. Richardson, and all the dogs in that movie are real. (laughs) So it's not like it stopped them before, and we've seen our share of whether it's Benji or Lassie or... Homeward Bound, like we've seen our share of animal movies, and I was like, I was sitting there watching, and I was like, you know what? It was, it's probably almost more work for a guy to sit in front of a computer for six months to render these animals than it would be yeah. to have a dog just sit there and look up at Emma Stone. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I don't know what the what the what the rule are or the Peter human or like whatever <laughs> whatever is what would stop them from using real animals, but. We haven't got there yet. You know what I mean? Like CGI has come a long way, but like to replicate fur in such a way, the 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 animals came across like uh, came across like really like eyes glossy, and it was it was pretty distracting to me. By the end, I was able to blur it all out, but here in the beginning, I'm like, why is this animal not real? <laughs> it's not like he was doing. It's not like he's like munching on a on a human or anything. This isn't Cujo. That dog's real. It's just general dogs kind of running around and doing dog-like things. I agree with you. I'm just perplexed. Um, it's just this is just a Jesse soapbox for just a, ten seconds. I'm just perplexed oh. about the use of CGI at times. Like I understand you want to make a Thanos or like a wormhole or a lightsaber by all means, but like little ticky stuff like this, like a building and like dogs and like water, like it's so unnecessary. Okay. I don't disagree with any of that. I'm with you on the CGI thing. All right, it take me out of the film the way it did you. Yeah. But I do agree with that sentiment generally that CGI is really, really overused when it doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. 
The uh, truth on the CGI thing is there's a volume to human mm-hmm. that CGI just can't quite replicate. Yeah. There's, it loses on, on the screen. It loses the mass and volume that humans have. Now, for all of the CGI moments, uh, the big one that's kind of the big action sequences in the first act of the film would be the Dalmatians nearly catching young Cruella when she swings on that chandelier. Maybe, big maybe here, you might make the case there. The second one would be the dog jumping on Cruella's mother and knocking her over the ledge into the uh, water below. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you need need that for both of them. Man, I just, I mean, there's a number of ways where they could have done that to where the dogs didn't necessarily need to bang her over the side of the cliff. Mm -hmm. They could have just backed her up and she could have fallen over. And I think you avert some of the special effects, if you will, that the dogs need. So yeah, no, I think it's a fair point. It didn't take me out of it like you did you, did you, but it's a fair point. Yeah. It's just, yeah, you said it right. So volume, it's just like, I see it and I'm just like, yeah, gosh, like that looks just, it looks pretty phony. And then I, huh? And then I, yeah. yeah, and then I start like going down and I'm like, well, why did they do that? I was like, that seems like an easy thing. But again, I, we didn't make the movie. I didn't make the movie. So like, I'll just accept that it's, they thought it was easier, which is silly. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question about go Jasper ahead. and Horace. Yeah, go ahead. Minute. Go ahead. When they rescue her essentially from life of street urchin and then with her build this little syndicate, this little thief syndicate that has got quite the scheme involved with dogs. And which is why I think she master. should. Which is why I think she should be in the Cruella hair at that point. You know what I mean? Sure. But I, yeah, dig- yeah, I, I, I digress. I digress. Did you find that to be as brother and sisterly as the movie wanted you to think that it was? This is the young ver- up till her getting the job um, in the as the janitorial service in the um, you know. Herods or whatever store that is. Did you buy that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, 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 I kind of liked, yeah, this pickpocketing gang and, you know, they got their own thievery mm-hmm. ring and this and that and they take jobs at hotels cleaning to go, you know, pilfer the, like, the resources. Like, no, I, I really, I really like that. I thought their dynamic together worked really well, especially when we get into the high sequence of the, of the film, which was maybe my favorite part of the movie. I thought that was done through one really simple writing decision with seven different writers involved they made one simple decision and that is Horace and Jasper try to isolate her Mm -hmm. they try to leave her alone they don't coddle her one of them doesn't really fall in love with her they don't immediately have some attraction and thank God that they didn't dick around with that in this film. They just I, thought that, the film. I thought they would have, I thought towards the end it was like a Jasper I, I thought they were like leering towards that and they kind of backed away well, there's one line that we'll get to, I'm sure, that kind of plays on that, but she handles it so well. But in this moment, it's basically you got to fend for yourself, and she's able to. She's able to, but barely. Mm-hmm. So on the playground, she was the best arm in the dodgeball game. In the class, she was the, the, the you know the smartest by miles, as they tell us several times. But on the street she's still a little raw and a bit of an ingenue. Yeah. And these two, Jocelyn Horst tonight, well, here's what you need to do. No, 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 no. It's, they escaped, you said, our Shantate. Mm-hmm. And she happens to keep up. And it's a bit by luck. And at that point, they just can't quite get rid of her. And she, in her own way, carves out a space that is as important in that trio, mm-hmm. or I guess there's five of them with the two dogs. Mm-hmm. Quadrant. 
Pentagon, <laughs> whatever you want to call <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. She's really important in that. And mostly it's done through the costuming that she comes up with to disguise them in their heist. Yeah. Uh-huh. Jesse, sometimes the best answer is the simplest one. Mm-hmm. And for all of hollow earth and all the bullshit that we've been struggling with for the last two months, where this is starting to really succeed for me is look, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Just set it up. She likes fashion, especially when that's just- if you're going to use her the way they do and dress her the way they do for the majority of the adult Cruella in this film. And it's, it's it and it's established pretty early on in that opening montage that, you know, her mom, uh, they both kind of have a liking to, to the fashion. They're, you know, kind of putting their own sewing things together and whatnot. But yep. we really see it uh, progress in these next scenes as she gets in one of her jobs uh, here at the, the one of the Baroness's like front sites uh, uh, stores uh, here in here in London. And, you know, she kind of like tries to like weasel her way in to do these things until she just has like, I guess, a drunken bender. <laughs> and yeah. falls asleep in one of the window side displays but before you know they cut to that uh and we don't see this has made it up within like her own aesthetic and when yep. we come back to it everyone's like mortified and horrified how could you do this to the baroness's dress and she's about to be arrested and it's completely crazy and then this happens you grubby girl yes jeffrey cart Hired. This address, 5 a.m. Don't be late. You're a fool. That girl put together a better window display than I've seen here for ten years. Here, here. <laughs> you were right. This is a very good shot. <laughs> you know what I really like about that scene, Matt? The, the inclusion of the door song in the background. <laughs> Well, I will agree with you, and I don't say that often. That absolutely worked in this film. And while we're there, let's just go ahead and give it all the credit deserves. An amazing score in this movie that fits the film and the look of the film. The time. To the stitch, I mean letter. The time of the film, too. Yeah, exactly. It was a really well put together soundtrack. And in looking into the budget of this film, I got... uh, This is kind of weird, Matt. I don't know. I mean, there's something going on here but it said the budget was between 100 and 200 million i mean that's a pretty big gap (laughs) to decide what the budget of this film is but oh man a good chunk of this had to have gone to to the music because it's just so diverse and varied with different artists and I, i even like it later on when they uh you know could keep going there with you know those recognizable like tunes like um what is it? I think it's a uh, painted black. Oh, uh, I think that that one. I think there's um, I think it's come together, and then there's a Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. I think it was whole lot of love, and they don't go with yep. those artist versions of the songs. They instead go with covers, which I think yep. you know work pretty well. You know, for the aesthetic of this film. No, I was I was pretty every time the scene ended and they cut to a song, and I was like, oh my god, like they're they're putting this one in. Some of them were. I'll just say just a, like pretty obvious, you know, time of the season. I mean, well, maybe that's just because we heard that in Conjuring recently. Um, yeah. But then they had some songs in there. I was like, this is a pretty good choice. I was like, the last time I heard this song was when Mark Wahlberg was pulling out his member in Boogie Nights. 
That's right. Yeah. Uh, but no, I thought that I thought that was pretty well. I think that was a definite strength of of the film itself. But I really like this moment too, and we would probably call this. Uh, this probably happens maybe twenty nine minutes. You know, the changing the end of Act One <laughs> turning moment. Uh, getting a job with someone who she idolizes. Uh, the the, the Baroness. Uh, and so the, she's kind of got like, you know, her foot in uh, her works being respected. She's got this great opportunity and it's just all going to fall apart as quickly as it began. Somewhere in the deep offices at Disney incorporated, uh-huh. they have this ability to take what are established properties, cannibalizing just about everything from the angels to ESPN. Like they own everything. Mm-hmm. And then and I, you know, I mean, I think a lot of this has been seen in some of the rants from Star Wars Incorporated fanboys and disnifying it. Mm-hmm. And if you say something's been disnified, there's an instant recognition. And most of the time, it's not like, oh, that means it kicks ass. It's quite the opposite, isn't it? It depends. It's what you just said, yeah. like the last four minutes of the show, you talked about Corella getting drunk mm-hmm. in a window and trashing it with some graffiti. We've talked about the use of bands like Led Zeppelin and the Stones. And I think where we're starting to see a great variant from prior works from this company is a courage to not be so cookie cutter and sweet. Mm -hmm. Just the time of this alone, they could have easily done this movie in 1910. And if you do it in 1910, then you get muted and safe and boring. Yeah. (laughs) But they set it in this punk era, 1968 to 75, 76, somewhere that feels like to me. Mm -hmm. And most of that has to do with the music. And by doing that and then using some pretty big moments like Corella's mother getting killed in the first seven minutes of the film or however long in that is they remove that safety net that I think is so maddening for a lot of us when it comes to Disney if I go see an animated Disney film yeah I know it's going to be pretty safe and pretty cute and as much as I love Coco and I love that film Uh that deals with death it's still pretty safe and pretty cute Mm mm-hmm They've done other live action films. Take, for example, The Lion King or The Jungle Book. Yeah. They still end up being pretty safe. I wouldn't say cute so much, but pretty safe. This movie is anything but, and through the use of the music, and by killing Corella's mother early on, that safety net for me was completely removed, and I did not know that, yeah, they can't go down that road because this is a Disney film, and that doesn't jive with the machinations of, administrative decisions and keeping things safe and all of what you're talking about, your protagonist is drunk in the window. Her mother's been killed by dogs. Who are the heroes in the story? I'll remind everyone. If uh, the use of this music, we're really taking a much different approach. And I found that so refreshing. This maybe isn't even a kid's movie. It is, but it maybe not, might not have to be a kid's movie. Yeah, it definitely flirts the line. I still think the film does have a safety net because as you were kind of, you know, kind of going into all of that, I tried to think, 
Well, if you take out the intellectual property of Cruella DeVille and this is just kind of its own original take, is Disney still making this movie? You know what I mean? It's the the notion of the Dalmatians and the Cruella character are still barriers that keep this film in check. If this was just some story about uh, ex-fashion designer and this war of fashion ideals and revenge plots, I think this might be a little bit riskier of a movie for Disney to make, but the fact that they're able to root it within one of their characters still keeps them in line with, you know, what they're all about. But you're right. I think, so I, I think yeah, yeah. Is it a qualm then with like established properties? Cause that's also the curse of Disney. Well, that's been, um, that's been my qualm for maybe the last 10 ish years with them is mm-hmm. this necessity to repurpose the past in a new clean package. It's still mm-hmm. the past, but it's newer and shinier and more CGIE. Uh, which is also problematic for, for just me as a, as a film goer and a film, I almost said film historian, please don't give me that title, uh, film enthusiast, (laughs) uh, which is, oh yeah, yeah. Film aficionado, cinephile, whatever, uh, (laughs) that a studio that was kind of built on you know, innovation, the mouse, yeah, the mouse originality that for whatever reason in the last 10 years, they're just stuck in this rut. And I'm not talking about Marvel or star Wars. I'm just talking about Disney castle proper, that logo and Pixar doesn't count either. Cause they're kind of their own separate wing of this branch. Uh, I don't know why they're kind of stuck in this moment. Do you know what I mean? And the quality varies. I mean, you mentioned a few that, you know, I really like the jungle book one. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I thought the beauty and the beast one was, was pretty, pretty all right too. But like, there's some in there, like uh, I never asked for the lion King one. And that one kind of no. came off a little weird to me when they had to sing and moments like that. It's just a, it's just a weird period for this particular, uh, studio. And then when I hear they're making sequels to, movies that are 30 years old i'm like is there really no source of originality over there to take a chance on an idea that could you know birth a new thing for them i don't i don't know i don't i don't have an answer for you it's just i'm just i don't know why they're stuck in this mode right now i know why because it's about money (laughs) it sadly it is and as you're going through that i was racking my brain trying to think of where the new properties in Disney appear. And I think mostly it's on the animated side. Take onward, for example. Well, that's, that's Pixar. That's why I was trying to really kind of yeah. separate. Cause it is, it's kind of its own thing under the Disney umbrella, much like Marvel and, and star Wars or just, you know, dare I say puppets under the Disney puppeteer. Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's all, like all of that animated from, from Pixar to the rescuers down under, whatever you want to say, all of that animated stuff that is either adapted from Grimm's or that's expect, right? Mm-hmm. What we tend to get on the live side is for the past decade, the remakes or prequels to characters, Maleficent included. Mm-hmm. Is the answer 
And I mean, I don't think Disney and their wallets certainly don't care about what you and I think in this space. Oh, no, they're making no, yeah, this, yeah. We, and like, even though, and we paid for this film on top of it. So we're completely hypocritical. Yeah, right? we're, so, we're, we're preaching to the suits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's from afar, from afar, afar. You don't think they're turning into the podcast this week, do you? <laughs> they can They can if they want to. <laughs> is the solution or is the daring then the risk for them? to do something live action that doesn't involve an animal as a spec property. I don't mean we need like inception Christopher Nolan levels of spec properties, but is that some area in Disney business wise, I'm asking you Mm -hmm. where you think they might be able to find some traction. And look, I'm sure there's a few live properties out there that live action properties out there, that exists in that space that I'm forgetting, but is there some room there business wise for them to do some material that makes you care? Absolutely. They just need to take a chance on it. Uh, they just need to go out and do it. And they just haven't done that, uh, as of late. And when they do do it, it just comes out just so not great. Uh, I would, would, wouldn't you rather see, because, you know, part of me with a lot of these reimaginings or remakes, and this one's a little different because, like, we've never seen this story before, uh, yeah. is, well, why am I going to go watch that one when I can go just watch the other one? You know what I mean? Like, how are you making it mm-hmm. so different for me where it's a completely new experience? And so far, I don't think any of those live action films have really done that, answered that question. Um, huh. it's, it's, it's almost like to just, it's the same car. We're just giving it a new paint job. Well, yeah. I mean, and if you want to go down that road, I don't think the prequel thing is going to help anymore with that either. Like we can talk for hours and probably come up with less than 10 prequels that you and I think are worth a damn. I know. Yeah. It's, 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 it's already a hard business to be in, but just, it's, it's just a thought. I mean, it's just this whole conglomerate in, in general, uh, it's just, it's, it's all been in, really interesting in the last 10, 10 ish years with them, their, their model. You know, a lot of production companies have a side production company division title. That's not associated with the company proper that allows them the freedom to make maybe what you and I are saying. Well, they used so to remove they... the castle, remove the castle proper and the mouse entity from this and give Disney its own. We didn't even know that was owned by Disney. Keep it hush hush. Hollywood and pictures. Maybe we can explore. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. maybe. Or like uh, Buena Vista, like the Rocketeer. That's a Disney movie, but you would like never know it. Do you think though, the fear on that is without our name and backing behind it, that we might not get the marketing machine in full effect. And at the end of the day, the cinephile or film snobs or whatever we are or whatever you are, I'm not any of those terrible names. I'm just talking only about you. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're too afraid of the financial loss to, to take that risk. I think so. And I think they're also the the day, the story's still kind of the same, right? Regardless of the company name, the story's still going to be the same. It is. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't, I don't know there, but what I really want them to do, I really want them to, and they're not going to, because I saw the slew of what's coming and buckle up everyone. Cause you're getting remakes of every cartoon you loved from the seventies to the nineties to the two thousands. You're getting a live action version of that, whether you wanted it or not. Uh, well, yeah, I just right. want them to stop and I want them to because if there's anything that could be banked on originality, it's that studio because 
to me, people go see a Disney movie because it's a Disney movie. You can get away with so many different spec'd ideas. You know, go, just go back all the way to like something like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I mean, that that's a Disney film moniker that is totally original, albeit a version of Incredible Shrinking Man, but you kind of get the idea. And they're, remake, know, they're, re, they're remaking that too with on the uh, as, a, as a show. Yeah, that's kind of suck. I didn't even like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, to be honest with you. Oh, that uh, I, that was one I really liked as as a kid, but it's that's just just a, a whole summation of that just kind of business model in general. But if let's get back to oh, the go ahead. One more quick thought, and then we'll yeah get back to it. Mm-hmm. Think about from the animated properties that they've turned into feature films. Okay, so you brought up all of the pre-existing cartoons that they're doing as live action prequels or live action features. And you can say the same thing about the Marvel element in this as well, because all of that's on the pages of dime store comic books mm-hmm. for the last 70 years. Yeah. And when they decide not to go with that, Kathleen Kennedy and star Wars, when they probably should, cause a guy named Timothy Zahn gave you some pretty good source material to work with. Uh-huh. And they screw that up too. So, you know, we can sit here and bemoan, the source material that they're using and where they're getting it from. And I don't believe that any of that is not unfounded. Like I think all of that's supported quite well, Yeah. <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, I hate to say it. Mouse has big green pockets, my friend. No, exactly. And he takes your money. When you, when you go to the park, you pay $20 for an ice cream and you, you just accept it. <laughs> don't I know that? Right oh now, man. Oh man. Uh, okay. So let's get back to the film. I'll, I'll play this clip. Oh, yeah, and, movie we're talking about. And yeah. set us up for this next bit. You're all right. Okay. She called my mom a thief. Said she failed as a mother. What? Your mom, she knew your actual mom. It turns out that was her party we were at. Mom worked for her once. I dropped the necklace as I was running away. She must have found it. It's mine. So I'm taking it back. Taking it as in? Stealing it. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the angle. Alrighty, let's get into it. I knew this was probably something you were going to really like because we like these types of movies. But yep. after day one at the Baroness's Emporium and she proves herself yet again, you know, she kind of gets this realization of of her mother and this necklace and kind of is talking bad about the mother and bad about the child. And it really puts her out. So it's like, you know, being really spurned by like your idols. Like we've seen this before in storytelling. And it's a, it's a it's something that that works really well. So now she has extra incentive to you know, bring, bring this, you know, this heist, this persona into the fold. Cause then it just becomes a story about revenge. Uh, am I not wrong in that? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So this, this portion of the movie, I think it really works for me. This kind of heisting with Horace and Jasper and the emergence of Cruella's, this fashionist, fashionista icon uh, that she, you know, starts to become like an urban legend in the, in the fashion scene. Well, what do you think of all this? I mean, they have, co- I mean, the, the, the dogs even have costumes, rat costumes and whatnot, but they're just so in tune with, 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 the, with each other that they, they really know each person knows their role, so to speak. 
we haven't necessarily gotten to the big moment in the film that's the reversal, but we're starting to give Cruella something to do. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it's just knock the Baroness down from this fashion pedestal that she has so ornately placed herself on. What's crazy about this, though, if you remove Cruella from this and just look at what the Baroness is wearing from scene to scene to scene, mm-hmm. she is dressed, I don't want to say immaculately, because that's not even big enough, mm-hmm. memorably immaculately. Her clothing is so interesting to look at, and I am not a fashionista at all. I, I, haute couture and all that, <laughs> like runway shit, like at least whatever, right? Who cares? But she's so interesting to look at until Corella <laughs> uh-huh. shows up and one after another after another mm-hmm. upstages her over and over again as sort of this rebel on the fashion lot. Yes, yes who just continually wants to steal her thunder. And here's where things get really interesting to me. And this is one of the points I wanted to bring up earlier, but I was going to wait till we get to it now with the building of um, Protag out of Antag Mm -hmm. in the prequel. The coverage that the Baroness gets is essentially fake news. She's paying the reporter Maya to cover her exactly the way she wants to be covered. And then Cruella shows up. Are you talking about, you're talking about Anita, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was like, I was the like, reporter. yeah, yeah. Cause she, yeah, she's the one that ends up with the, the, the dog at the end. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On, yeah. The, on IMDb, she's given the title of Maya. That's her name is Maya. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her cast name is Maya. I still, in Hunter Window Dalmatians, it is Anita though, right? Yeah. Anita Darling. Which I yeah, always thought cool. I always thought Darling was a like a pet name that they gave like Anita like Anita Darling, uh, but apparently that's her last name. <laughs> yeah, no. So the African American reporter that's kind of covering the fashion scene is this gal Maya is kind of on the payroll. I, I mean, not necessarily, but maybe with the inside scoop and the inside track, and here's what's going to happen until Cruella keeps showing up. And if her plan or the angle mm-hmm. is to steal the Baroness of Thunder, we get the big character flaw in the Baroness revealed. And it is, she's not creative. She might be ruthless, but she's not that smart. And if it's not for the underlings around her mm-hmm. coming up with these amazing, amazing fashion designs, yeah, she's mostly forgotten. And this is going to get into, I hope we have a couple minutes to do this. because I really want to dig into this with the, yeah sort of singularity of female villainy in, in Disney films, but Cruella shows up and presents a more interesting story and organically begins to steal the Baron's Thunder, which is exactly what she set out to do. You know what the best one is too? Mm. Uh, the one that I love. The truck. one where she spills out of the back of the, the, the garbage truck. truck. Yeah. And it's oh just my God, like isn't that good? a trail of a, like a garbage dress, but like everyone oh, loves it's it. So good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you're you're right. You like you know the Baroness. Uh, you know she rules with an iron fist, but it's essentially just a cadre of people. And this is kind of what reminded me, like the devil of Meryl Streep and Devil Wears Prada, of like being able to mm-hmm. like have people do your bidding. You know, get me my lunch, steak. Get me my steak, <laughs> or yeah. make me make me the dresses. Like we never see her really do anything. You know what I mean? It's like all like yep. just a show. She's the one on the pedestal. Uh, taking the supreme credit as people like furiously work around her. Uh, But yeah, you're right. Once Cruella shows up and they kind of get this quasi 
uh, successful heist, uh, although the Dalmatian does eat the necklace, and then so then they have to kidnap the dog, and that becomes a whole thing, and then they're housing the dogs and kind of going back and forth. But I, I do like the, this other aspect that you're talking about, the, the, the emergence in the media of Cruella and uh, slowly stealing the thunder from her. Like when she has like the the glow in the dark paint on the side of the building, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And the battle ensues in such a cool way; it almost breaks the fourth wall. As as we're watching the images roll across the screen, we're getting the narrative delivered to us in the Daily Mail as well, or whatever newspaper, or London Star, or whatever the hell it might be. Mm-hmm. Over the like almost like titles over the fashion battle that's going on between the two of them. And it creates an almost like chapter effect. And I know you're a huge fan of the chaptering of pieces of the film. Yeah. I, for me, it almost created the same sort of storybook way that that some Tarantino films could be done that way. Um, Absolutely. Not quite, mm-hmm. but, um, and maybe it's like three or four or five different times, but guy, there's back to the same thing again. Uh-huh. Corella shows up in every scene in some version of black and white and Emma Stone and whoever costume designed her looks in this mm-hmm. should be winning an Oscar because she looks amazing. And what can you do with black and white, Jesse? Well, apparently a, a lot. A ton of different things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she looks good. Oh, uh, what was I going to say about? Uh, let's see. We talked. You brought up the dogs for a minute. The Dalmatians. Talked about the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the character that is covering the Baroness, mm-hmm. the fashion scene for the Baroness, I think represents a larger narrative in this film. And it goes back to what we were talking about in the first 10 minutes of the breakdown. Mm-hmm. If we're going to have pure evil, then the way it's presented to us in 101 Dalmatians is from particular point of view, a mm-hmm. traditional pro tag point of view. Yeah. What this did for me with Maya and the, media, mainstream media being so purchasable by the Baroness is creating a narrative that maybe we've been led to believe wasn't entirely accurate at all because the Baroness starts to tell the world Mm -hmm. that Cruella is wearing dog fur dresses Mm -hmm. when in fact she's not. But two things happen with that is one, we create a larger lying villain, which is certainly the Baroness, and that's not news. We've seen that at this point. Mm-hmm. But we've walked back the irredeemable. If Cruella really is murdering dogs, there's no. This movie doesn't get greenlit. They no, I know exactly. No, yeah, the, 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 the Disney's <laughs> gonna do that. Disney's gonna cross the line sometimes. They're not. They, they wouldn't do that. Not, yeah, no, unless it's, unless it's like a Marley and me, like to make you cry sure. yourself yeah. to death <laughs> in your popcorn kind of sentimental <laughs> moment. Secondarily, if they've been lying about that, maybe they've been lying about a lot of this stuff about her the whole time. And I like that narrative. Mm-hmm. I like that when they did it. I know you didn't love it as much as they did it for me and the Joker. I knew you were gonna Phoenix I knew you were maybe. gonna bring up that movie because I saw a lot of Joker parallels in this in this particular film, but I tend I tend to like that because if it creates a question, then it's about perception and I think you get more opportunity for story and divergent paths. I think you get, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right in that. It gives you a lot of opportunities to play around with a character that you thought you knew. But what it does for me, and this is, I think, where we yin and yang, Yeah, it waters down the villain aspect of the film. Like, to me, I don't, I don't sure. need sympathy in my Joker. I need 
pure evil. And I think I feel a little bit the same way with Cruella too. I mean, because she's just such a bull in the China shop when she shows up in that cartoon, uh, Mm -hmm. you gravitate towards how ruthless she is. And if we're trying to water that down to make her sympathetic, that's one thing, but it does, you gotta be careful with these prequels because what it ultimately ends up doing, if you have this type of perception, it can start to affect your view of what comes later. Uh, and I don't know if I want that affected for me. So while I'm willing to go with it for this film, uh, it, it, it these prequels can tend to kind of undermine what's already come before, and I'm not a fan of that. Wow, that's oh, that's great, Jesse. I mean, that's not great that you're a fan of that. What I'm saying is that's <laughs> yeah. a good catch by you. Yeah. I'm glad that the 101 Dalmatians has been ruined, Jesse. That's not what I'm saying is yeah. your affinity for the original is watered down by the backstory from the prequel. And look, that's a very fair criticism. I didn't get that from this. I yeah. thought, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, you have to be careful, just generally speaking, mm-hmm. with what's already established as canon and really good and, and not I, fucking it up with things like trade routes or... Well, um, yeah, you, you, you're mentioning the one that I think does it the worst because at least Joker yeah. and Cruella are kind of a little removed from what they're alluding to because there's been so yeah. many Jokers and... 101 Del- is a cartoon. Star yeah. Wars undermined that, and it it almost starts to gravitate away from what makes Empire and New Hope so good, which is just Vader as this totalitarian ruling with yep. an iron fist. And it's another reason why I don't like Return of the Jedi is because they really soften him a ton in that last one. What's what's wrong with just the guy just being like pretty bad? I mean, there's a, there's all about the redeemable moment, but the whole prequel arc became all about the redeemable moment for him. And get me the hell out of there. <laughs> so I have a hard question I'm going to ask you. Okay, then. okay. With what you've just stated out, where do you draw the line between being the embodiment of pure evil versus the embodiment of pure evil with a cause? that is worthwhile for the viewer to pay attention to, AKA I'm going to turn this into rubble and rule over it. Yeah. I need to see it in the movie that it's being presented in. You can't make that movie and then go forth and make the movie to make him redeemable. So like in, let me give you an example. Um, of course I'm trying to, you know, think, think of villains just like just off the top of my head. Um, I'll give you another example of where it doesn't work for me. When okay. when Clary Starling uh, views Hannibal Lecter for the first time, I'm talking about the Anthony Hopkins one, and he's yeah. just standing there waiting for her behind the glass. Like you just you get him instantly with one piece of body language to totally undermine all of that with Hannibal Rising. And well, here's why this guy started eating people. Just totally, almost just kills everything that's so interesting about that character. But if you are trying to build sympathies, and Matt, we've done this in our own writing. We kind of, we know, we call that, you know, the specific moment where we humanize the villain. I need to see Mm -hmm. it in the film that we're currently watching. Don't give me the evil guy and then go back and try to re-explain, oh, he was evil because of this. No, build it into the story. It shouldn't be its own separate story. Like, make it part of the the whole larger narrative. And then where you can really succeed is if you're doing both at the same time, if you're doing the same thing with hero and uh, antagonist, which is going to be really, is going to be really hard to do. Do you want a prequel? Would you tolerate a prequel, a prequel or Margaret White in Carrie? Um, probably not. 
would you tolerate a prequel for John Doe? Uh, probably not. Fair. The one film that I think it, it worked pretty well, and it's not a prequel, but we see flashback elements that are peppered into making us weirdly on his side is, is Thanos in Infinity War. I think that's like a humanizing of his vision of what he's doing is correct. Let me give you one more. Okay. Mm-hmm. Would you take a prequel called Prometheus? Admiral Clint. <laughs> Ad, Admiral Clint. Ad, okay. Absolutely not, because we get that moment already in the Indianapolis scene, and that's enough. You know what I mean? That story that he tells on the Orca is enough to know why Quint went the way he went. And us seeing that isn't going to improve or get us on the side of that particular fisherman. It would also need to be Robert Shaw, too. (laughs) Tough, that's tough cast these days, my friend. Do you kind of know what I'm talking about? Like, once you've, like, just established yeah. them, if you're able to, like, wheedle it into the... Okay, perfect. You just... You, Jaws is a perfect example because they find a moment in that story to make that moment happen where we're kind of on Quint's side that this man went through the most horrendous event that a human could possibly go through, one of many that the humans have gone through in the course of history. But you get mm-hmm. him in that one tale when he says... I'll never put a life jacket on again. Like you understand mm-hmm. why he's so weathered and why he has a personal vendetta against this shark. He doesn't yep. want the money. He's got a score to settle. And I don't need a whole movie uh, about that. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't want that either. I'm just trying to think of some, some quintessential villains. And I think you're around a really important concept mm-hmm. and maybe it's only important because I've been thinking about it for about the last 16 hours. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about just villainy for a minute. Okay. Again, I think when it comes to man, not as gender, but as species, yeah. the villainy traits have to be based on the human condition. If they're not, then what you essentially have created is a villain that is a monster. Mm-hmm. So if your villainy is revolving around one of two tropes, which is usually the acquisition of power, or the other one, which is the bastardization of youth Mm -hmm. you tend to get a human element in them yeah if it's something else like i just want to eat you generally tend to get a monster yeah i think it's why hannibal lecter for example works really well until we give him a stupid tattoo what i mean by that is he is really personable and takes quite a liking to young Clarice. Mm-hmm. It's almost creepily done in the way that he admires her so much. But what makes it creepy is I don't think Hannibal Lecter, and I'm not trying to be shocking or freak anybody out with this. Mm-hmm. I don't think Hannibal Lecter wants to mate with no. Clarice Starling because that makes him human. Hannibal Lecter would like nothing more than to eventually best her intellectually and then devour her. Mm -hmm. And that makes him a monster. So what I think you have with Lecter Mm -hmm. and Bruce, John, the shark Mm -hmm. is monster. And you know, what's great about those types of villains too, is it's almost in order for protagonists to defeat monster, they almost have to become a pseudo monster themselves. I think about Ripley and alien, like you almost have to get on the same level as your foe in order to have a fighting chance, I mean, 
look at Roy Scheider. Reduce and, themselves and, to the savage in order to defeat the savage. When you try to, when you go with just the, the mortal piece on this, yeah, that's where you get, and it doesn't work, I think, as much for you because you brought up Darth Vader, and it's part of the problem, what are several. I love that you brought up Return of the Jedi, is yeah. you take the mask off, yeah. And now he's not a monster anymore because he doesn't look like a monster. It's like on first glance, mm-hmm. he's not a monster anymore. He's just a human. But yeah. when he says, I want you to be my son, you've reduced the monster and the embodiment of pure evil mm-hmm. to the quest or the consumption of mankind to rule with. Yeah. Okay. So now let me give you, let me put this all together. One of the, the interesting things that I think happens with Disney villainy, feminine mm-hmm, villainy, mm-hmm. that's often levied as a criticism against it is it's all maternally based. Mm-hmm. And I love, cause I spent some time reading some interesting reviews this week and or not this week, the last couple um, hours. I wanted to read this specifically to you because it really made me think. Okay. Um, it is, let me pull this up. Uh, this massively insulting, this is massively insulting to every woman who has ever questioned her desire to have a child, suggesting that it is merely a hop, skip, and a jump away to infanticide, murder, and abuse. Because this is talking about the Baroness. Mm-hmm. Because her moral deficiencies are framed in this way, the Baroness becomes the torchbearer for a long line of Disney mothers and stepmothers for whom straying outside of maternal stereotypes places them beyond redemption. Apparently, we still can't manage anything more horrifying than a woman who isn't naturally selfless and maternal or worse, one who doesn't want children at all. I read this and I thought about it long and hard. Uh-huh. It was a common criticism to the villainy of motherhood in Disney from Bambi's mother to mother Gethel. Yeah. They've been doing to, it. They've been doing it for years. Yeah. But Jesse, yeah, that's not particular to women in Disney films. Cause if we remove women in Disney films, I could give you Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis Diedrichson or Stella Dallas. Mm-hmm. I could give you, Oh, I could give you Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. I can give you Mrs. Bates. I can go on and on and on and on. Margaret White. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. What I keep bringing up here is there's only certain amounts of villainy that we can deduce from the human. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to the monster, that's a different story, but we're talking about humans now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's an entire genre built around, two of them, as a matter of fact, built around this idea. Mm -hmm. The slasher horror film, which Mm -hmm. inevitably is birthed from bad moms Mm -hmm. and their inability to raise properly and film noir. Yep. So as this person is crying about in this very woke bullshit feministic take on how the objective or how the bastardization of women in film is particular to Disney, nobody, and I mean this, nobody wants to see the evil female accountant. No one gives a damn about that. Well, said, you know, and on the same token, hold on, let me finish the, I'll, yeah. I'll give it to you. On the same token, every male human bad guy is built on the same general premise as well. Yeah. And it's consumption for power. Yeah. Literally every single one is built on that. Like if you're like, we can cry about, Oh, well maybe I don't want to have children, but like work through whatever you need to work through on your writing, honey. That's cool. Good for you. I'm glad this movie brought you to that and you're thinking and good for you. 
but don't act like that's a fault of a Disney villain or a male villain and whatever. They're basically two routes you go as the human villain versus the monster villain. And finally, yeah. I'm give it to you after this. If we keep the villain as human instead of going the villain as monster, the villain and monster can just basically just eat <laughs> pretty much what they do. Mm-hmm. Or harvest, whether that's soul or, or consumption of like mass for food. If you keep it to the human, it is basically boiled down to those two simple traits. Thanos mm-hmm. wants to rule. Every male villain wants to rule. Mm-hmm. And he, well, what about Norman Bates? Norman Bates wants to rule his own life, but he can't because his mother's in the way, which is mm-hmm. both of those perfectly explained. Yeah. When mom's fucked up raising kids, that's the most terrible thing there is. Welcome to film noir. Yeah. It's, when sex is, is emboldened as an instrument of power or weaponized. Yeah. That's as terrifying as it gets. Mm-hmm. All right. I thought I was going to give it to you. Run. No, it's just, it's just why film as a landscape is just always so interesting to me because, you know, people can read into things however, however they decide to interpret. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. but it's, uh, yeah, that's definitely a, a takeaway that I don't, I don't really take away from this because literally Disney's been doing that since 1939, 1942, whenever the first ones come out. And if you kind of really kind of, he had, he, I think he did also have his own maternal issues with his own mother as well. And mm. that's why they are so prevalent in, in, in a lot of these films, mm-hmm. uh, that there wasn't a good relationship there. But okay. yeah, I don't, I don't think, um, you know, the, you know, the groundwork for, for that is, you know, necessarily kind of pulls you out of this film because what this film is ultimately, uh, a tale of to me is, you know, someone finding their own identity, you know, within, you know, horrible revelations. Uh, we've already mentioned one, yeah. which is the killing of your mother, uh, yeah. by this horrible thing. And then what are you doing in response to that? And Cruella's take on that is to, you know, break bad, but then also do one up on the barrenness. And that's what this kind of second act middle portion really gets into is kind of, you know, upstaging her. I mean, we, you mentioned a few of them already. You mentioned, you know, the garbage truck one. Then I like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) concert they do in the park. And then Mm -hmm. like almost Hannibal Lecter, like, like infuses this dress with mobs that just like devour the whole array of her lineup. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, that was that was that was the, visually that was a good scene. I was like, watch those moths be real, but they CGI'd every other animal. But no, it was probably done in the computer too. <laughs> well, you're a hard man to please. Yeah, I man, you know, it's like I've been told that a lot when it comes to movies, and yeah, it only makes those moments. And I'm so glad you brought up Jaws too because I, I revisited that I think uh, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And then for everything that I just said too about you know having to become the monster. Roy Scheider's Brody is pretty docile through most of that movie until he's the last man standing and has to do something about it. You know what I mean? Like it's, he has to meet the shark on the shark's terms. This man who's afraid of the ocean, who doesn't know how to swim, uh, is the last one to defeat evil is pretty remarkable. Uh, no, but even that's like, even that's more apropos to what you said, Jesse, mm-hmm. all of his devices are taken away. Yeah. The boat. <laughs> Think about how he kills the shark. Mm-hmm. He kills the shark with oxygen. Yep. So when he blows up Bruce with oxygen, I know it's done with the gun, but he's 
two seconds away from being submerged in the water and he's lunch. All of the human pieces of him have been stripped away and he's reduced to mano a mano in nature to take down the monster. Mm -hmm. And one by one, it has to go that way. It has to. The orca doesn't work. His friends are gone. That stupid cage that I rich Richard Dreyfus would get eaten in every time I watch that movie because Matt Hooper so just oh god he kills me in that film. Um, they're all gonna die, but anyway, I'd love that <laughs> film also. But Matt Hooper needs a good sandwich. <laughs> I, I, um, I love it. I love when his legs get caught behind the rope and he like gets squeezed against the side of the boat and oh, yeah. give him room. <laughs> This is the Jaws podcast, right, Matt? <laughs> God, look, every once in a while, you and I do this. I don't even know how much we've actually spent talking about Cruella. Okay, so let's let's finish up the third act. All right, and I agree with you. He's reduced to a monster to take on another monster in Jaws. Perfectly well, safe. Let's talk yeah. about this moment in the film, too. So a bunch of crazy stuff happens. Um, after this uh, park concert, this was a bit of a stretch for me, too, because the Baroness was able yeah. to recognize uh, Horace, 300 feet away and be like, I know that guy. And so yeah. they're able to follow him to lead them back to the residence of their Shantate to mm-hmm. arrest them, take the dogs back and then kill Cruella. Essentially. I mean, they're going to let her burn in this house, which I think is admirable for the villain and for Disney to go so dark with that. Yeah. Um, but then when she's rescued or she gets out of there, we get this moment with Mark strong and I, I really I really want to ask you uh, like is how does this work for you? The Baroness has a kid. You. May I walk you through it? The Baron was a sweet old guy. The Baroness, on the other hand, she's a true narcissist. So when she found out she was pregnant, I'm pregnant. She wasn't exactly thrilled. The Baron was delighted, so much so that he surprised her by giving her a family heirloom. She took the necklace, but she had other plans for you. Stop. You keep saying you. You are her daughter. I was there when you were born. The Baron was away on business, and she ordered me to do the unthinkable. You know what to do. It was a diabolical request. I knew I needed to protect you, but how? Then I saw Catherine, the sweetest woman who ever lived. She saved you. So all secrets revealed at this point. Uh, the scariest part about this uh, scene is seeing Mark Strong with hair. It was just so unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, like I got a Huntsman from Snow White? Uh, almost, yeah. I got to ask. sure sounds like the same speech. Go yeah. ahead. I got to ask you, because this... You know me, man. I mean, this like that, this this kind of stuff in movies like really starts to like irk me because then we get into the convenience factor to enhance the plot, and I honestly feel like this film was good enough up to this point to not need to go here with this. Why did we have to make it so familiar? I know we're trying to do the thing with with uh, the ties to mother motherhood and all these relations, but I almost feel like this was a revelation that the film didn't need to go into. Cause it also makes the film like 20 minutes too long. <laughs> yeah. two fifteen, Right. So that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a twist. And for the beats, I think they said we have to have a twist in here. It's close to being too much. 
she doesn't need another reason to hate her. We've established so much already why we do right. hate her. Like how the killing your mother is like literally enough. Yeah, she's a murderer. She's thieving. She's just outright just a bitch. Greedy. Yeah. Um, for all of the things that I would agree with you that aren't working in there, what does work for me in that specifically is the question that kind of ties back into what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we're going to talk about the maternal villainy, then the way we described it, it sounds like it's pretty singular and there's not a lot of play there. Mm -hmm. The reason for the Baroness to not want to keep Cruella isn't because she doesn't want to have a family or because she resents her. It's because it's going to take her career away from her. Maybe I like this mm -hmm. because it's the same version, but opposite of Mrs. Robinson. And you know how much I love that character. Yeah. But when we get a very common horror trope, that's the uncanny, the return of the repressed, that is your daughter coming back home. Mm -hmm. And she's just as talented, if not, well, that's not even true. She's more talented than you are. She looks better than you are. Yeah. She might be more ruthless than you are. Then what you've effectively done is sterilize the Baroness. Yeah. Whether the Baroness needs to be her biological mother or not, I don't think changes any of what I just said. And if they're going to go into all those ideas and philosophies, then I, I need I need Alfred Hitchcock making that movie. You know what I mean? Yep. Oh, I, sure. yep. I need someone else that has the the deft and the prowess to really flesh those out without beating us over the head with it, which Hitchcock was like the king of that. Uh, it is an exposition dump. It is a little contrived. And I agree with everything you said. And I'll tell you that it still works for me in that one space too. Yeah, yes, no, yeah. I, you're right. Philosophically, like I, I really like, you know, what it brings to the film. It's just, you know, it's just, it's one of those scenes in the movies. And, you know, we've had a lot of these lately, this like third act, like revelation uh, mm -hmm. of just adding another element into the plot that really didn't need it to begin with. Like we said, like, uh, like we, the whole goal of this film is we must hate the Baroness and we need to see Cruella uh, surplanter. Uh, we get that, but I don't even think we, we, we still get it. Even if we don't have this, I, I think is this to just t to the rags to riches portion of the story where we're going to finally give her some financial gain in the end. Uh, Cause we need to see well, that, that aspect of it. Yeah. Here's another thing too. That's another reversal on top of that. She's eventually going to get the locket back or the necklace back. And mm -hmm. she's going to come to discover that there's a key in there mm -hmm. to which she opens up the lock box that, Mark Strong's character happens to have mm -hmm. that then only further reveals all the stuff that we just said that she's heir to this fortune. Mm -hmm. You almost don't need that exposition dump from him mm -mm. because her opening the box and seeing all that in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you get it. Shows it anyway. <laughs> you get it. You have the same thing. Yeah, that that's just another modern movie thing. If it's too much CGI, it's we overexplain everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. We got to explain what's in the box, and then we got to explain why it's in the box. And what's then we, in the box? <laughs> yeah, what's in the box. Your legacy. Well, there's a movie that like ex doesn't explain what's in the box, other than just like uh, a reaction. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I put that in a T for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well said. It's, it's so good. That's why it, I almost feel like in that <laughs> sequence. Welcome to the Seven Podcast, by the way, everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I almost feel like that ending might even get totally ruined if they showed what was in the box. It like it's so much better of just the idea of true horror 
of what's happened. Yeah. Well, anyway, back to Cruella. <laughs> We've covered Jaws 7 and Cruella in the same hour and 30 minutes. We're doing good. Things. I love it. Uh, okay, so like the, the final sequences here are just going to be like the final play, but like I, I got to play the Joker moment because, again, we, we already brought it up. Sweet Estella. Try as I might. I never was. I'm Cruella. Born brilliant. Born bad. And a little bit mad. Not like her. I'm better. See, the, and this this is a pretty good moment. This is like the realization of your true nature. Your true intent uh, is now going to take over your full personality. But like if this was the yep. moment in the film, Matt, where we finally see her in full black and white, uh, then I think that idea comes through more clear because... Why tell the story of Cruella's origin story? Because you want to see how she became the woman that she became. Like, this is like the big moment of the film. And it, that right. dialogue works. I just feel like the transition could have uh, been aided a little bit along the way. Doesn't kill the film for me, but just going back to what I established of a gradual transition from Estella to Cruella, I think they could have like played that out a little bit more. There, yeah. yeah. Um, but this is no good. Yeah. This, this is good. This this actually uh, suggested. I, I was like, man, Emma Stone would be be a pretty good Catwoman if they threw an opportunity her way. Mm-hmm. I got like a like a crazy like Michelle Pfeiffer vibe off of this film. And if this was made in like '92, like this would probably be Michelle Pfeiffer in this role, which would be perfect too. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is good. I thought about that. That's a good cast too. Yeah, nice. But let's talk about this final sequence here. So it's all kind of, it ends where it begins, which is something I do like in movies. Like I like a return to, uh, you know, where, you know, things like ultimately started, which is the palace of Versailles over here on the cliff side, uh, at another, uh, fashion party. But this one is almost like a, uh, turns into the wake of Cruella, like everyone mourning the loss of this fashionista icon. Yeah. And everyone's adorned in black and black and white, you know, headdresses and costumes. And the Baroness is like, what the hell's going on here? Like, like, we can't get away from her. Not even after death. We did away with her. And then it's just little by little, the plan, you know, slowly starts to come to fruition. And we, we failed to mention, but, uh, you know, uh, Cruella pulls a Terminator and, and breaks uh, Horace and Jasper out of the, the jail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the team's back together, and there's some good moments there where they're, like, kind of resenting her attitude change a bit, where they're like, maybe we should bail and kind of, like, cut our losses, and they finally, but they do come back around to it, which is, I I, th- I think, uh, pretty good character moments for those two, at least. Yeah, we start to see her, as we talk about Breaking Bad, forsake her own family and go down the path that the Baroness did, which is everyone is just sort of at my disposable as a means to an end. And thankfully she's able to walk that back. Cause there's a couple moments where I sort of expected Jasper and Horace to tell her to pound sand. Obviously yeah. they don't yeah. We've all seen the movie mm-hmm. and, and like rightfully so not come back. Like I probably would tell her to go to hell too. Mm-hmm. Um, 
she's able to bring that back just in the nick of time. Partly it's because they're incarcerated. Otherwise they would flee, but it's also a reminder for her that you can't go all the way bad because there won't be any reason, not for Jasper and Horace, but as Jasper and Horace represent the audience, a reason to still be on your side a little bit. Mm -hmm. So this is a little Thomas Crowney for me. Uh, Everybody's (laughs) sort of dressed exactly like Cruella is. And, um, you know, the Baroness has already uncovered that Cruella isn't dead. So it might be, a little overdone where it's not needed to be, but visually it still looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, that, that black and white thing really worked for me in this film quite well. I, I thought I'd be bored to tears with just black and white, black and white, black and white, but it looks so striking. I don't know how to say it other than that. It's very striking. Um, what, what do you think? Yeah. Well, what, what do you think of this final confrontation? Because, Cruella sets it up so so well to like be just a total recreation of how it exactly happened between her and mother. She's I love how good at pickpocketing they are because to me pickpocketing mm-hmm. in movies is so crazy because I'm like you wouldn't feel someone just like reaching into your ass to steal your wallet. Uh, <laughs> they do it. They're just so it's so slate of hand the way they handle it. And yeah. she takes the dog whistle from her like a gauntlet cuff, and yep. you know is out there. The Dalmatians come out, the Baroness comes out and it's at that moment, the Baroness should be like, Oh my God, like what am I, what am I in for here? And it's a great moment. I think uh, where we finally, the Dalmatians are such a centerpiece of this entire franchise. You're wondering how they fit into the fold other than foils to have to shit out a necklace. Mm-hmm, right. But uh, they're here and they're on Cruella's side. So now we see the tides have turned and, I, I got to tell you, Matt, I was actually pretty shocked the way this played out. I thought maybe the plan would have gone differently or the Dolphins would have, uh, or the Dolphins, the Dalmatians would have pushed the Baroness off the cliffs. But quite the mm-hmm. contrary, it plays out the same way in the opening. I'm sorry. Can I please have a hug? You're not going to push me over the cliff, are you? No, that's too on the nose even for this movie. No way that would happen in a Disney film. Boom, over the cliff she goes. However, da-da-da. Cruella, who is claimed to be the mastermind and far superior intellectually to the Baroness, once again proves that that is the case. A what two hundred people witnessed this murder. Yeah, yeah, and that and, and that was the goal was to catch her in the act to ruin her, not physically, but uh, image wise. Kind of what something a little bit better than a parachute from the skirt she was wearing, but yeah. it works. Yeah, um, yeah. At, at this point, how much more movie do we need? Because as much as I did enjoy this film. It is getting a little long. We do need to come to an end at some point. This should so, be, This is an hour and 45 minute movie. <laughs> no disagreement. No disagreement. Yeah. But yeah, she's catches the Baroness in the, in the act. Everyone turns against her. Uh, she's going to lose out on her estate because we've already established that Cruella is the rightful heir, but she happens to be dead. But yeah, because of the parachute, we're able to kind of save the day one last time. And she, arises as the like the 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 new antagonist i really like uh that kind of touch that she does to the wrought iron on the on the house at the end yeah yeah house. yeah really really good and go ahead i want to ask you a question it just came to me if cruella is the intellectual superior to the baroness is it a bit of a myth to have mark strong's character rescue her from the fire instead of her figuring out her own way out of that possibly 
Maybe, huh? I just, it just occurred to me now. Maybe it, it what we need two more minutes of film. There was plenty of space. So that might be a miss for me too. Yeah, a little bit. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she's been able to kind of like get out of and weasel her way out of every other situation. Yeah. Like why, why not that one? Another yeah. to, to make Mark strong, uh, remove some of the villainy from him, uh, because he's going to be part of the team, I guess, going forward. But yeah, I, 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 I didn't mind the ending and, you know, I kind of knew where it was going and you knew she had to kind of take center stage by at least the end of the movie. And yeah, mm-hmm. she has this estate, this sprawling fashion empire, and she's gonna do with that as she pleases. And uh, and then we get at, and then we get out of it. But then there's the yeah. after credit sequence, which I thought was a little interesting. I'd like to just chat with it for a little bit. Yeah, always trying to put the cart before the was it the the horse before the cart before the horse, and establish what's coming next. Now again, what I say, I can't let these movies impair my judgment of what I liked of what came before because that came first. The end sequence ends with her dropping off a Dalmatian each to Roger and Anita, the two Mm -hmm. uh, protagonists of 101 Dalmatians, uh, which is uh, essentially a story of like these characters get together and meet and then the dogs mate. And then Cruella's like, well, I need all those puppies for my fashion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why doesn't she just do that on her own? Why does she have to like stage this crazy love triangle to like make evil happen? You know what I mean? Like for as smart as she was, as we establish, this is a horrible plan. (laughs) Yeah, man, I have more, I mean, look, the idea of a post-credit scene is to create questions for your viewer, and they certainly did that, but the biggest one, and that's why I brought up the name Maya, and it hung us up earlier in the podcast, too, is she's not Anita. That's Maya. And Anita is the mom to the Dalmatians in the movie, the character Kirby Howell Baptiste, the African-American reporter, is titled, her name's Maya. So are we going to go from Maya to Anita to, um, got the dad to, uh, to Roger. Yeah. And then secondarily is this a warning? Like this part of maybe is working. Is this a warning from Cruella? Is this her just stirring the pot? No, um, the, to me, no, to me, this is, to, to me, know. this is fan service to oh, yeah, sure. uh, allude to, what you know is on the horizon, but what it does is well, it, I can it, tell you it's already on the horizon. Like on June, like on the third of this month, they announced that the prequel is or the sequel to the prequel ugh. is already in production. It's already happening. Oh goodness. Um, this movie killed the last two weeks, Jesse. It made an absolute fortune. So it's coming. I guess they needed a place to go. That's pretty early in the release though. So it makes me wonder there may, let me give you one sliver of hope here, my friend. Mm-hmm. If they made the announcement that there was a sequel coming to this film so early on in this film's release, maybe that means that they were written together. And so there's a bit more continuity than we might get with, well, that other movie works. So let's see if we can't sculpt something out of what's left. Maybe we do have that to look forward to because ladies and gentlemen, it is happening for sure. Look, Vanity Fair, Hollywood Reporter, it's all over the place. Like you can even find pre-casting information. It's all over the place. It's for sure greenlit happening. I think it's late 2022 is when it's coming out. And I just don't know what else you're going to do with it. You know what I mean? Cause it's going to essentially just be uh, another retread of all those 
uh, remakes of Dalmatians. You know what I mean? Well, as I was going to say, Avenger at this point isn't just 101 Dalmatians. The next story is pretty damn close. Oh, it has to be because that's yeah, yeah. It's these two with the dogs, and then they fall in love, and then their dogs fall in love, and then you have a harem running around, and then it becomes the Ooh. quest to get all the Dalmatians to make coats. I did, yeah. I did not need this sequence, and I don't need another movie. To what you're going to do with that other movie is you're going to totally undo what you did with this character in this one. Yeah. You don't need any more. You don't, you don't need any more with, with Cruella. Nope. Like you've already told everything that it, there is to be told. Fair. Um, Fair. We can be done with it. It's okay to be done with it. Right? All these after credit sequences. It's like Disney's, it's Disney's whole, whole game now is to tease you with the next thing to entice yeah. you. But I'm 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 on I'm on to you Disney. It's you get to take it takes, <laughs> takes a lot to entice me. You're not just going to get me that easily. You're not going to get one over on Jesse. He's a cinephile. Yeah, I'm a film for person. No. Uh, what did I? What did no? What was the other one I said? I'm a, a film uh, historian. <laughs> You're a film historian. I guess I, I bet it. I bet I could put that title next to my name. I I did go to school for that, so. Uh, I'll have to see. I'll have to see how easy that is to add to the end of your name. Anyway, well, we're putting titles next to your name. There's a couple I might like to throw out there, so I'll keep that in mind too. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> um, excellent. Uh, what was your favorite tasting note of Cruella? Um, like I said, I think it's the fashion battle with the chapter-like effect with um, explaining it. I don't know what you'd call that. Uh, the newspaper reporting as we're watching Cruella and the Baroness battle it out. I thought that was. Of all the things in this film that I didn't think I would like, the fashion piece on this was one of the ones that came through with flying colors in black and white. I really liked the fashion aspect, too. And while I was watching it, it kind of made me realize that, you know, because I am so far removed from that industry or have any inkling to care about it whatsoever, I do appreciate (laughs) movies that take place in that world, whether that's... uh, This one, uh, Devil Wears Prada, Velvet Buzzsaw, or Mario Bava's uh, Blood and Black Lace. I think there's some interesting things you can do with that world, which uh, there's like a craftsmanship to it. And I think that's well, what you I... even like that Daniel Day-Lewis film, that one, um, the Phantom Thread. Oh, yeah, you Phan- like that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's an interesting world to play around with. And I think just because yeah. I have no business playing around in that world. So film presents me an opportunity to see snapshots into it. Uh, you have no business playing in that world. No truer statement has ever been said on Rise Smile Film. <laughs> you should not be at the helm of any fashion design classes, my friend. Hey, but I, I, I do I do appreciate uh, getting finely dressed. It is It is something that I do take pride in, so... Uh, uh, mine's going to be that initial heist, uh, necklace heist sequence. Cause of course it's going to go awry and, you know, the fumigating of the rat dog and, and getting caught <laughs> and it just turns into complete chaos, which was just really a lot of fun, but it was, it was yeah. fun to see Emma Thompson and Emma Stone, you know, spar back and forth with their two characters. Uh, so th- yeah. that, that was probably my, my favorite scene. What's the, love it. moment of Cruella. Well, we're probably both going to have the same one. So I'm actually not going to pick the one that I normally would. So there can be some variance here. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually going to pick the scene when the Baroness sets Cruella's apartment on fire. Yeah. Um, Emma Thompson, we haven't, we spent a lot of time talking, I think about Emma Stone and 
paternal villainy. But one of the things that's going to be missed in this film, I think, sadly, is how freaking good Emma Thompson is Mm -hmm. in this film. She does a better Glenn Close than Glenn Close did in The Devil Wears Prada. She's better at it. Um, Oh, you mean Meryl Meryl Streep? Meryl Streep, right? Did I say Glenn Close? Yeah, Yeah, sorry. You know what I meant. Um, Tony Curtis once said, or Cary Grant said that Tony Curtis does a better Cary Grant than he does, and I think this is the case with Emma Thompson in this film. That's good. Um, Yeah. So you know, let's that, go there. It's a dark moment for the movie. We're like you're like her solution is to just burn her alive in this dilapidated house, this dilapidated and attic. Do- <laughs> her two sidekicks, the dogs mm-hmm. that are left, the other two have been incarcerated, are not able to chew her out of her her bindings. Like she's done, man. Cruella's done. Mm-hmm. And what that means if that goes up, as those dogs go up with it too, and that is something like we've said a few other times is not par for the course for most Disney films. That's well, that, a little bit edgy for them. That was a weird sequence too, because it was at that moment when I was like, okay, here's a perfect example of where you could use CGI dogs because there's a fire. But then I was like, wait a minute, the fire's fake too. So like, there's no danger to even <laughs> the, 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 any real animals. Anyway, <laughs> I'll just get over that. Uh, okay. Mine will probably be the opening sequence. I thought that was a really kind of striking way to start uh, this particular movie. Um, Mother over the cliff. Absolutely, yeah. That was just yeah, totally yeah. didn't. And then I didn't understand it. I was because uh, what we find out later, the re- other, the if you needed another revelation in this movie, is that yeah. Emma Thompson dog whistled the Dalmatians to come do that. It was like a call. It was like come take care of this. Because yeah. I was wondering when we watched, it, I was like, well, why did they stop and like not attack Cruella there? And like, why did they then go attack the mother? And we find out why. So yep. that's going to be the moment for me. That's, that's a, uh, I'm all about great inciting incidents and, you know, starting your film off right on the, on, on a good foot to make it interesting. And I thought this film definitely did that. Perfect. Good. Nice um, who's the master distiller on Cruella? Uh, well, as I said, just a moment ago, we probably both would have the, Oh my same, Oh my God moment. Mm-hmm. So I purposely didn't choose the thing that you chose. Um, I would imagine that it's probably pretty close on this one too. So instead of giving it to Emma Stone, which it could easily, I'm going to go the other Emma and that's Thompson. Yeah. Uh, she's fantastic. She is a very capable villainess. She's hateable. Uh, it's simplistic enough with just the desire for fame and what all of that means, especially when it's juxtaposed against where Corella comes from. And that's living from hand to mouth, hand to mouth with whatever you conceive in the Shantate of all Shantate. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Ian Thompson gets my vote on that one today. Excellent. Excellent choice. Uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll go with the other Emma for this one because this is pretty much her, her vehicle. And I think she, she really, she really kills it in, in this role, uh, to the point where I know why they want to make more, but, uh, I think they should leave well enough alone because just, just the performance, the mannerisms, the mm-hmm. just, you know, the, the fashion aspects that she just, she really nails every aspect of it. And you know, she's become one of my favorite working actresses. Uh, she's, I think effort, effortlessly watchable in all of the films that she, that she's in all the way back to the super bad days and all the way to this. Uh, so I'm going to give it to her. I think it's a, it's a pretty great performance uh, from her. Yeah, I don't have her filmography in front of me, but there's not many misses, if any misses, on that, where mm-hmm. the movie sucked because of her. She's really good in everything that I can think of the top of my head. Absolutely. Uh, how yep. are you going to rate and grade uh, Cruella? Let's just do a little review of our ratings. We have Rock Gut, which is bottom of the barrel, one star. 
Then we have Well, you know, your two stars. Not not quite so great, but not entirely terrible. You have Call, mm-hmm. middle of the road, uh, three-star-esque. Then Single Barrel, for those truly unique films that stand out on their own right. Four-star rating, if you want to give it that. And then our top shelf, the best of the best. Where's this going to uh, uh, line up for you? I'm going to tell you something right now that might surprise you. Okay. In the last decade, and you know that I really liked Coco, Mm -hmm. this is the best or most enjoyable or thought-provoking piece in Disney that I've seen in the last decade. Oh, wow. I really liked it. Um, I might have liked it just because I'm in a space right now where my head's around some of the themes in that, and that's just Mm -hmm. merely happenstance. Yeah. I think the acting's really good. I think they took a very tough concept and built a nice piece out of it, which would be um, a lesser Disney villainess and created a story that I cared about in not a super contrived thought coming from the moment it started sort of way. Uh And this is a solid, solid single barrel for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, If this was on again, I would absolutely sit down and watch it. Emma Mm -hmm. Stone is terrific. Emma Thompson was terrific. Mark. Mark Stone, how about that? Emma, Emma Stone Stone has got a lot of names repeated in here. Yeah. Um, was really good in it. I cared about the characters. I thought it aesthetically was the best looking Disney film that I've seen in a long, long, long time. Yeah, it had like I a thought for their live yeah, for their <laughs> live action stuff, it's it's second to none. It's the best live action that they've done. And I also like the jungle book. Mm. And that includes being more visually appealing than the jungle book. Yeah. I really like this film, Jesse. Okay. It, it's not perfect, but it was really good for me. So what's the rating? Oh, did I didn't even say that. Gee, sorry, single barrel. Good okay. Solid single, single barrel. Middle road, single barrel. This is a nice, 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 nice film. Excellent, excellent. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, like I, I feel uh, this was like I think another pretty solid, you know, twenty twenty one release, which you know we haven't had a lot of those lately. Thanks, Warner Brothers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I was. This was interesting because. We did preface that, you know, I, I am a fan of the cartoon. It's probably one of my favorite from the early years of that whole batch, honestly. The, I watched that like a, a 42, lot. 42, is that when that is? I think it's 55. It's in the 50s, 55. yeah. So um, you can tell the animation is getting a little bit more sophisticated compared to, like, the 40s-esque drawing of humans. Like, it's getting a little more jagged, a little more uh, rock and roll, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I really, I really like that. So I'm a fan of that. This was a film that I never needed. I never asked for it. I never wanted to know the origins of Cruella. And now that they've given it to us and offered it, I guess I am glad that I saw it. And I'm glad that um, it turned out as as well as it could. This could have been, I think, like a really terrible movie. I think just Mm -hmm. this could have been total rock gut. And it's definitely not... uh, Again, there's some of those things that really hang me up. The CGI dogs, so unnecessary. Uh, and uh, the 11th hour twist on a twist uh, that we always tend to get from some of these movies. Um, yeah. I think I'm a little different from you. I don't know if and it's the runtime. Uh, like I said, it's two hours and 15 minutes, which is, man, that's long for a quote unquote kids movie. Uh, I need like 20 minute shade from this thing, but I don't know how often I'm going to revisit this one. Uh but I am glad I, I I definitely checked it out, and you're right. I'll I'll just sing the praises too. Brilliant performances. I love the look. I love the soundtrack. Um, it's just uh, I got what I got, and I'm I'm happy with that. I'm gonna give this probably about a call rating right down the middle of the road. Uh, 
I'm with you in terms of live action Disney fair. This is definitely at the uh, towards the top with uh, I think yeah. the, the Beauty and the Beast and the Jungle Book. This is yards better than Maleficent, which should have been uh, home run, which they just totally boggled. Uh, so yeah. I think that's the only other time they've like really dabbled in the villain origin tale. But yeah, it's it's I think just a, a call call road for me. And again, the other thing that hangs me up, and this is just Jesse's soapbox, it's tapping into more intellectual properties instead of, you know, doing the same story and just making a new movie out of it. You know what I mean? It could have just been a yeah. fashion movie about fashion rivals. That sounds cool. Uh, but the safety net of the backdrop of 101 Dalmatians is is a bit of a deal breaker for me. So that's that, that's where I'm going to line up on that one. Yeah, if they were worried about just doing a fashion movie about fashion rivals and having people say, well, you're going to get the devil wears Prada, then this movie didn't do anything to quell those um, those criticisms because that's essentially what a lot of this film was anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Okay. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's wrap this up with our nightcap. All righty, we've established our villains in our flight question. We have from Tangled and from Hunchback of Notre Dame. So now the nightcap, simple, simple, simple. Who are you casting in that role, Matt, to play your villain in its own Disney origin tale? This is the most perfect cast in the entire history of cast, Jesse. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, this I'm ready, I'm ready so for perfect. it. And I even have the soundtrack song that the character will be introduced to. Okay. To play Mother Gethel in my film is none other than Cher herself. Okay, excellent. And the song, If I Could Turn Back Time... <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's too perfect. God literally put that in the world so that I could say it today and make everyone see how smart I was. That is perfect. <laughs> I wonder. I mean, she looked, how, how, did, how did she not voice that anyway? I know. Who did do the voice for that? Well, it's sure as hell not Cher. I don't know who was it, but it's not Cher. Hmm. And I don't even like Cher, Jesse. I, I know. Mean, bang, bang. That's a great song. But, man, come on. That's too perfect. That's pretty good. And Cher yep. just like I just has had some work done, but like she's like almost she's like in her seventies. She she's huh. she's in her seventies, but you know what I mean. Like it, she still looks really good. Yeah, I want to yeah. see it. Sign me up. I have to tell you a funny story about that that song too. So when that video came out, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but she's on like a aircraft battleship. an aircraft carrier. Yes, yes. You, have you seen it? <laughs> I have. Man, just I had to have been like. In my late teens, if not early 20s, when that thing came out. And I'll never forget it. My mom came around the corner when that was on. And she, like, made me change the channel. <laughs> what? I was like, Mom, she's like, that is so inappropriate, Matthew. You turn this off. I'm like, Mom, it's Cher. She's like, turn it. <laughs> so, yeah, God bless Cher for getting me in trouble with my mom in my late teens to early 20s. Because, you know, at that point in my life, I'd never seen a boob before. Oh, man. Oh, that's funny. Yep. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, with mine, uh, Judge... Give me your priest. Let's hear it. Yeah, yep. Judge Claude uh, Frollo. Uh, I, you know, I try to think of just like swirly, like craggly, like old men <laughs> that could fit this. 
But I, w- yeah. I went with some with a little bit of a gravitas that can, you know, at least, you know, twist the material a little bit. But maybe that means who I'm putting in the director's chair as well. I want Christoph Waltz as Frollo. But this movie's going to have to be made by Quentin Tarantino then at that point. <laughs> Boy, that'd be an interesting kind of take on that, wouldn't it? Oh, goodness gracious. But I even remove Waltz from Tarantino. I think just his presentation, his mannerisms, he can come across, I think, as pretty welcoming. But then, like, I think downright kind of fiendish. <laughs> Uh, which is yeah. what this character definitely the turn he takes. So put a little whatever the priest beret and put a put put that uh, uh him in some robes and I think you got it pretty good. So that's who I want. I like it. That's a good choice. Good job. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's a wrap on Cruella from 2001, released just three weeks ago. Go check it out in the theaters or on HBO, HBO Max. On Disney Plus, uh, the premiere access. Um, this has been a lot of fun talking about that and talking about Disney. I'm sure they won't come up ever again on the podcast. Never heard of Disney. This is a one-off. <laughs> this is a one-off for that uh, <laughs> no-name company. Uh, but next Disney. week, we're going to kind of stick around with some small batch of film review with another 2021 release. And this is a big one for us, Matt. This was actually the film we had planned on doing before we totally got derailed with all the readjustments from last year, and we're finally going to cover it. (laughs) So coming to you next week, we have A Quiet Place Part 2. I'm really excited to talk about this one. Have you seen it yet? Not yet. Not yet? Okay. Uh, Just I'll let the cat out of the bag. I've already seen this one, and I'm not going to say anything about it, but uh, I'm just very much looking forward to talking about this particular film. Yeah, I'll catch this one back at home. We'll be back in in town for that one. So um, by the time we cut the show, I'll be able to see that one in the theater back home. So, yeah, that's the plan. Excellent, excellent. It's going to be a lot of fun. Go hit up the Patreon. we got a lot of fun stuff going on over there. Uh, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the Loki uh, TV series, which just premiered on Wednesday. We're going to do that episode by episode, week by week, exclusively on Patreon. We just yeah. unleashed Tombstone Watch along this week. And uh, coming up in a couple weeks, we'll be doing Dazed and Confused. All right, all right, all right. And all right, then, all right, all right. And then uh, you know what? We have a lot of, a lot of fun stuff planned here in, in the next coming weeks, so. Matt, this has been a lot of fun uh, to to do this, talk about these films. I do miss you sitting across from me, though, so it'll be nice to have you back next week. Uh, but uh, until then, uh, we'll we'll see you we'll see you next time. Hit us up on any of the social media platforms or at RiseSmileProductions at gmail.com. But until then, we'll see you next time. Go Islanders! Everybody, have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening. To Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies, and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Cruella is property of Walt Disney Pictures, Mark Platt Productions, and Gun Films, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. So what now? I've got a few ideas.